welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Who am I? He would ask the nation of Israel and look at my words and my works. He asked his disciples, uh, who do people say that I am? And they offered various comments that they had heard people make in different groups. And, and then Jesus asked the twelve very directly, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered correctly saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And later when visiting Martha and Mary in John chapter 11, Jesus said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Speaking of eternal life. And he said to Mary, do you believe this? And she replied to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So a small number of individuals in Israel surely believed. And this is because during those three years of a public ministry. Jesus never really hid who he was. Um, he just didn't say outright who he was at the beginning. But instead, he proclaimed himself through his preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and through his comp compassionate life, through his many miraculous works for all eyes to see and to judge. He presented himself to the nation. As we observed just a couple of years ago, uh, when, we, when we took three years and nine months to progress uh, verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, there is no mistaking who Jesus is. It is unmistakably clear who his words and works say that he is, the question that Jesus wants you to answer is, who do you say that I am? Looking at all the evidence in the Scriptures, who do you say that he is? Jesus' message was so clear, in fact, that from the earliest moments in his public ministry, I think, I think it starts as early as like John chapter 2, early on. Um, from the earliest moments of his public ministry, the religious leaders began plotting how they would kill him. Not because he was an imposter, but because Jesus exposed their hypocrisy and he proposed... There would be an inclusion of the Gentiles into the household of God. Whoa, they didn't like the news of that. 
If you were in the adult study this morning, the parable uh, that we heard about the Good Samaritan, the Jews sure did not like the idea of any Gentiles getting called into the people of God. And they wanted to, to kill him, as we learned through a parable a couple weeks ago, a parable of the vine growers, uh, because they knew that Jesus was the Son. They knew that he was the Son of God. Uh, Luke 20, verse 14 says, But when the vine growers, that's re, uh, re, it's, uh, referencing Israel, when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, Oh, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. What a way to go about getting the inheritance. And I believe in that same study, Mike added that soon after Jesus' uh, triumphal entry, uh, things turned south really quickly, really quickly, almost immediately. And uh, this is because one of Jesus' first stops was to cleanse the Jerusalem temple a second time. A second time. Jesus' first cleansing of the temple, recorded by the Apostle John, was in fulfillment of Malachi 3 and verse 1, which says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Boy, Jesus came to his temple saying, And you think that Mr. Clean is tough on stains. I'm going to show you something. And he cleansed that temple early on in his ministry, uh, but it simply didn't take. It just didn't take. Folks, flipping tables and driving out merchants is effective, but Jesus wanted to show it's not a permanent solution. After only a week or two, you know, people just, you know, shrug their shoulders, return to their old behavior once again. Uh, you know, you've got unbelieving friends and relatives. They say they're all excited, and then they think about judgment, and they're like, whoa, I better get right with God. Yeah, a week or two, they're right back to where they were before. It was the same with the temple after Jesus cleansed it. Between us, a permanent solution is needed in the temple indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's the cleansing that brings permanent change. He who is in Christ is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new through faith in Christ. That's the cleansing of the temple. We are his temple. Jesus' second cleansing of the temple occurred when? Well, as uh, Mike showed us a couple weeks ago, not too long after Jesus stepped off the donkey, we aren't precisely sure the exact uh, moment, uh, but soon after stepping off the donkey, he cleansed the temple for a second time before beginning his teaching at the temple during that Passion Week. Swept house again before he sat down and taught 
during the Passion Week leading up to his crucifixion. And uh, it is there, actually, during that week where he taught that parable of the vine growers and how he quotes the Old Testament saying that he had become the stone that the builders rejected. We know the chief cornerstone. Folks, did Jesus Christ legitimately offer himself to the nation of Israel as their messianic king, fulfilling God's repeated promises in the Old Testament? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He offered himself. What was the nation's response? In John chapter 19 and verse 14, leading up to this Easter Sunday that is coming up, and we know the events that began to occur in that week as, as the resistance to Christ grew and grew and grew until they finally set away with him. John 19, verse 14, when Pontius Pilate presented Jesus to them, what did he say? He said, Behold, your king. And Scripture says of those Jewish crowds, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest priests answered on behalf of the nation, we have no king but Caesar. Did these physical descendants of Abraham respond to God's promises with the same faith that was seen in Father Abraham? They claimed to be descendants of Abraham in John 8, verse 39, during a confrontation with Jesus, the Jews even said, Abraham is our father. Jesus replied this to them. If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Meaning, respond in faith. But as it is, says Jesus, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth which I heard from God, Jesus says, this Abraham did not do. They're seeking to kill him. He said, this Abraham did not do. You remember how he responded? How he wrapped that up? He said, you are doing the deeds of your father, the devil. Wow, you think my preaching gets tough sometimes. Israel crucified God's son. What does God owe the nation? Hold that thought for a moment before we answer that. After the Jews had rejected their king, however, what did God do to fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham that his descendants would, be, uh, would number greater than the stars that he could count in the sky. God sent the gospel to the nations. 
This is why, this is the reason why in the Abrahamic covenant, this is the reason Abram was renamed by God Abraham. A father of a multitude is what Abraham means because he became a father of the many nations. You'll find in Genesis 17, verse 5. And through giving the Great Commission, Jesus fulfilled it. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, was the cry. And what appeared to be a defeat for Christ through a denial by Israel served as a triumph everywhere else. And this is when we see the Gentile grafted into God's household of faith. In Romans 4, as we read in our scripture reading, the Apostle Paul said rhetorically, Is this blessing, speaking of the blessing of Abraham, is this blessing then on the circumcised, meaning the Jew, or on the uncircumcised also, speaking of the Gentile? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, and we learn Abraham was justified by God as righteous through faith that he had while he still remained uncircumcised. Paul's saying even Father Abraham wasn't circumcised when he was counted righteous. The promise made to Abraham is fulfilled. As Paul says, for this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, or by grace through faith, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Not only, and he clarifies, not only to those who are of the law, meaning the Jew, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, Paul quotes the Old Testament again, a father of many nations have I made you. That promise made to Abraham in Genesis 17 points at both the Jew and the Gentile. Boy, aren't you glad? I know I am. We are all Abraham's descendants through faith. For in Romans 9, Romans 9, in verse 24, folks, that is smack dab in the middle of Paul's treatment of divine election, divine choice. Speak about unilateral acts of God. And there we read, even us whom God also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, Paul quotes the Old Testament again, Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. Boy, Hosea now gets in on the game. And if you track the Old Testament quotations that, that Paul uses throughout Romans, and there's a slew of them, you will find, due to the stubbornness of Israel, 
a future inclusion of the Gentiles is what the prophets had always taught. This verse came to mind as I was sitting here. Ephesians 3, I'll just read it for you quickly. Is inclusion of the Gentiles what was always taught in the prophets? I could cite a bunch of them, but uh, how about this one? Paul writing Ephesians um, chapter 3. He says, um, the mystery, speaking of the mystery, Paul says, uh, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery, says Paul. The mystery of Christ, which in other generations, speaking of previous generations, was not made known to the sons of men, wasn't made known in general, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, says Paul, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow heirs. Does this mean that God has now wholesale rejected ethnic Israel? All of them just wholesale rejected all of ethnic Israel? No. No. In Romans 11, Paul essentially states this, I being a Jew, I am a prime example of, of how God continues working through Israel. Paul uses himself as the illustration. No, he hasn't completely cast off Israel. I'm an example of that. He saved on the Damascus Road when he was in complete rebellion, and God woke him up. And there in Romans 11, Paul reminds how even the prophet Elijah had said, I alone am left. It's just me, Lord, he protested. And in Romans 11 is God's reply, no, no, Elijah, not only you, I still have 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's not only you, 7,000, well, of course, among millions. What do you call that? A remnant. A remnant. And therefore, Paul concludes this in verse 5. You ready for this? In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And then using an illustration of an olive tree, Paul warns, so, well, you Gentiles, you were grafted in. You were the wild branch that was grafted into the rich root of the olive tree. Um, so don't become arrogant towards the Jews. Don't think you got something now that they ain't got. Don't disparage them. For Paul says that they too, if, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they too will be grafted in. Just like you Gentiles. 
Folks, Jews can be saved just like you. For what we see, says Paul, is a, a partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It, it was never a full hardening of Israel. It's a partial hardening of Israel, Paul says. I'm an example of that remnant. Uh, and what that statement promises is this, that during the times of the Gentiles, the, the church age, uh, Israel will continue like it always has. Even during the time of Elijah, there will always be a small believing remnant of Jews. There will always be a remnant. It wasn't a total hardening, just partial. Therefore, therefore, this is important. When Paul says, all Israel will be saved, he does not in any way suggest all ethnic Israel. Nor even a majority of ethnic Jews will be saved. For just two chapters earlier, again Romans 9, he stated, They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. So when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he is referring to those like himself, the remnant, all true believing Israel. He is speaking of elect Israel. The remnant will be saved, not all Israel. You don't get saved just because you descended from a certain family. Um, Folks, that, that is the way it's always been, even since before the time of Elijah. It's always been a small number of Israel who actually accepted Yahweh and, and accepted the grace that Yahweh offered uh, to Israel. What percentage has it been? What percentage was it then? What percentage is it today? Who knows? There's no way to know. Paul doesn't say, but he does say, don't worry. Don't worry about it. All elect Israel will be saved. None of them are going to get left behind either. And during these times of the Gentiles, a small remnant of Jews, like Paul, will continue to come, faith, uh, come to faith in Christ. And this is what we have always seen in the church. Which are Abraham's descendants by faith then? Is it Jews? Or is it Gentiles? Both. Both are descendants through faith. Do we treat Jews and Gentiles differently in the church? Boy, Peter made that mistake, didn't he? Up in Antioch and Paul got all over him in Galatians. Boy, you're pretending something that ain't there, Peter. Well, in a reference from Galatians, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile in Christ. We are all heirs of Abraham's promise. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are born to. The church does not practice a caste system that you are born into. 
Galatians 3 verse 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Get this. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We worship as joint heirs of God's promise in the church. I know someone is going to protest at some point. Well, you know, they're still male and female, so they're still Jew and Greek. Yeah, yeah. Physically, physically, there are some who have Jewish ancestry, sure. Um, no one would deny that there is a genetic distinction of these groups. But there exists no distinction concerning our inheritance of the promise. The church is one. In Acts 15, when Peter reported to the Jerusalem council his experience with Cornelius, remember that, the Roman, Peter concluded, we, are, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way. Get that. Put that in your pocket and hold on to it. In the same way as they also are. No difference. And James declared, James is the one who gave the judgment after the, the, that, that great uh, council in Jerusalem. James declared this, speaking of Simon Peter. He says, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With the words of this, the prophets agree, says James. With the words of this, the prophets agree, just as it is written... And he cites some Old Testament prophets. Quote, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Was this something new? No. No. And he says... I will rebuild the temple's ruins. I will restore it. Don't miss this. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Which temple does that talk about? Remember, before you answer, the Gentiles are the focus. Is that some future temple that's being talked about here? No, 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 no. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are the temple of God. We are the third temple of God. Christ is building it through His Spirit. In fact, um, Zechariah has a great prophecy. He spoke of 9-9 and the, the riding on a donkey's colt into Jerusalem. You go to Zechariah chapter 4, and Zechariah, another one, add him in with Hosea and, and Moses and Genesis, everything else. Zechariah says, um, there's going to be uh, two olive trees. Guess what they represent? Go ahead. 
Jew and Gentile, who are going to supply their oil to a lamp that is going to burn brightly to the nations. And that's where he says, not by might nor by my power, but by what? The Holy Spirit. That's the temple that's being talked about in Zechariah chapter 4. The temple of the church. He continues on, talks about the two sons of promise uh, in that prophecy. Um, That is not a prophecy uh, for Israel itself. Um, This is James' judgment. Citing the prophets and other things, he says, this is the way God planned it from long ago. God is going to build a new temple of both Jew and Gentile together. It's called Christ's church. Colossians 3, verse 10 says, Put on the new self, who has been renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal where there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free man. But Christ is all and in all. Christ is... In all indicates a new temple indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's a real cleansing. We are the temple of God. In Romans 10, this is uh, strategically and significantly inserted between Romans 9 and Romans 11. In Romans 10, Directly between God's divine election, Romans 9, and the grafting in of the Gentiles into the olive tree, Romans 11, Paul states this, quote, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth He confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is, again, no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. How much more plainly can you say it again and again? Paul says, abounding in riches for all who call on his name and whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, this, this is a lot of scriptural real, real estate that repeats this. Old Testament and New. During Passion Week, a rejection of God's Son by the nation of Israel instituted the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations. That came about because of the rejection of Israel to Jesus, or rejection of Jesus by Israel. And Abraham's promise is given to both Jew and Gentile who are joint heirs in Christ's church where Scripture says again and again, our Lord makes no distinction. No distinction. To add just a little more substance, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2. This is a critical text. Remember Ephesians chapter 3 that I turned to earlier um, brought about the, or talked about this mystery that uh, was known from long ago, says Paul, uh, among the prophets, the inclusion of the Gentiles. Um, that comes shortly after this passage we're going to look at. But just for a little more substance, because this is such a critical text. It's, it's, I, I think it's the second biggest find today. The biggest is yet to come. Ephesians 2 displays the full significance of what Wayne Grudem calls fulfillment theology. And this is because the Old Testament promises of a full grafting in of the Gentiles alongside the Jews, not instead of the Jews, but alongside the Jews, that was promised to Abraham experiences its fulfillment in Christ's church. We are all sons of the promise. Of course, Ephesians 2 verse 8 is important too. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone boast. Then look at verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time, speaking of previously, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, including Abrahamic. They were at that time previously separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of of promise, including Abraham's, having no hope and without God in the world. It was a dark world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, speaking of the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That remark, formerly far off, you were former, formerly far off, assures the Gentiles are now included. We're now included in Christ. We are now included in the commonwealth of the family of God. We are now included in the covenants of promise. Verse 14, oh boy, this is, this is important. Verse 14, for Christ himself is our peace, having made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the, of the commandments contained in the ordinances. He abolished the Mosaic covenant in that regard, or at least in that respect. Why? So that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, into what? One body to God through what? Through the cross. 
by it, speaking by the cross, having put to death the enmity, to death, it's gone. And verse 17, this includes a prophecy by Isaiah. We read, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, speaking of the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, speaking of the Jews. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together, Jew and Gentile, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You couldn't find stronger language that there is no longer a Jew or Gentile. We are both being built into one dwelling, the same dwelling of God in the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. Christ's church is the temple, the people in it, not the buildings. In Christ, Jew and Gentile have become one. The enmity between the two and between us and God is put to death. That's, boy, that's pretty final. And through the blood of Christ, God has brought peace, making both groups into one. Through the blood of Christ. Then we hear that he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He abolished the Mosaic Covenant so that this could happen between Jew and Gentile. And we are being built into one new dwelling together. He divided... He he tore down the barrier wall, and by doing so, God made Jew and Gentile into one new man through the cross. Through him we have our same access, one spirit to the Father. We are joint heirs according to the promise. We are no longer strangers to one another. We are the household of God together. We are fellow citizens, fellow joint heirs, Paul says, one foundation one cornerstone. We are a holy temple of the Lord being built into one, fulfilled through the cross. Here's the question that Paul asked Corinth. Has Christ been divided? Will Christ be divided? No way, no way. The church in Thessalonica, made of both Jews and Gentiles, share the exact calling from God. Namely, our passage in 2 Thessalonians says that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, we are co-heirs of grace. Some, just realizing that some may remain a little confused as to why I'm so um, emphatic. Let me clarify. One of the chief arguments for a pre-tribulation rapture 
is that God is going to work separately through the Jews again during a final seven-year tribulation period. You don't find that in Scripture. It is an argument made by conjecture. It is claimed that God owes the Jews another chance. God is their debtor. And supposedly after the rapture of the church, it's proposed that God is going to refocus once again on the Jews and on Jerusalem. Some people have even told the Jews, well, just wait until after the church is gone. Once we're raptured out of here, boy, God's really going to work through you guys again. Whoa. Whoa. Folks, after the rapture, it's going to be too late. Some even suggest that God wants Israel to rebuild a physical temple in Jerusalem, propose that, you know, there needs to be another temple. There is another temple being built. You're looking at it. God actually tore down the other one after they crucified his son. God has been rebuilding his temple for nearly 2,000 years. It is called the church. We are the bride of Christ. And the bridegroom has set his affection solely on his bride. We are descendants of Abraham by faith. Do you really think, after all of this we've talked about, do you really think that God is going to erect a dividing wall? Erect again. Rebuild a dividing wall that Christ broke down and abolished through his blood in the cross. No. No. And after making us into one new man, reconciling us both Jew and Gentile into one body through the cross, no, we have received the new covenant that was also promised to Israel in the Old Testament. There's going to be a new covenant in the body and the blood of our Lord. There's nothing in the New Testament say, hey, wait for it. In the Old Testament, there was. There's a new covenant coming. You go to the New Testament, there's nothing there. So wait, wait a second. There's going to be another new covenant. No. You don't find that like the Old Testament uh, used to do. Um, but it is still... It's proposed that God still owes the Jews something through the Abrahamic covenant. By the way, before I go to this last thing, we don't have a lot much time left. Um, I apologize for going a little bit long. Thank you for your patience. Um, before we get into this, the Abrahamic covenant, what do you think of a local church that would call itself either exclusively a Jewish messianic church or a Gentile church. Well, that's our identity. We're a Jewish church over here. We're messianic Jews. What do you think of that? Has Christ been divided? No, no. Um, but it is proposed that God still owes the Jews something through the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral covenant. That means that God promised to fulfill it by himself. It required nothing of Abraham. Uh, that's why it's been called unconditional. There's no conditions attached to Abraham. Uh, because Abraham um, 
wasn't required to do anything, and the promise is for Abraham and his descendants. Who are his descendants? But there are two main elements of the Abrahamic covenant, two main ones. There's a third called redemption, but I think we can all see where that comes, so I'm not going to go to the redemption part. Um, two main elements to the Abrahamic covenant. Number one, Abraham will be a father of many nations. Done. Fulfilled. The other part of the covenant is the land. God stated to Abraham and restated to Isaac and restated to Jacob, that's Israel's fathers or the forefathers, that he would give them a land to which there are very specific landmarks and boundaries. Okay? I was taught while a student at Dallas Theological Seminary that Israel had never inherited the whole land. Only part of it. They never you know, spread themselves out to the full expanse of the uh, geographical markers that are laid out in Scripture. And I was also told that God promised Israel they would enjoy complete rest from their enemies on every side and that that had never occurred. So that the Jewish people had never inherited the whole land promised through Abraham or had complete rest from their enemies. And I was assured that the land and rest were elements God that, promised, that God promised to the Jews that had never been fulfilled. Uh, therefore, it has to be future, right? I was told because Israel has never enjoyed rest in their land. It had never been purged completely of foreigners. Uh, but God made this covenant promise, so it must occur sometime in the future. I was told God still owes Israel the land. Um, GodQuestions.org, which is a pretty good resource if you have questions. Uh, most of their stuff is, is fairly, fairly uh, trustworthy. They even have this, this quote, and this is what I basically learned. They say, quote, At no point in history has Israel controlled all of the land that God had specified. Okay? My professors never drew my attention to Joshua 21. I'm, I'm not going to make that same mistake uh, with us. This is how we're going to close today. Next Sunday, I'm going to focus on the promise of a new covenant on Easter Sunday. Uh, one that God made to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. That will be in Daniel chapter 9. That will be next Sunday. But Joshua 21, you might want to earmark this. If you don't want to turn there, just remember where this is. And I will pick up at verse 41. The context is immediately following the conquest of the land led by Joshua. At this point, the 12 tribes have divided up the land and are fulfilled, uh, have fulfilled the necessary provisions for the Levites in the law. It's required. In verse 41, it says, All the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the sons of Israel were 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its surrounding pasture lands Thus it was with all these cities. Remember, this was at the end of Joshua's conquest. Then it continues, quote, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of their enemies stood before them. And the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. That's how it wraps up. 
Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All had come to pass. Did Israel come to possess all the land that was promised in the Abrahamic covenant? The answer is yes. yes. Does God today still owe Israel the land? Something he didn't fulfill? No. Any, any promise remaining in Israel today is shared with the Gentiles in Christ. Is there a future for Israel? Absolutely. It is fulfilled through the new covenant in Christ that was promised long ago. Absolutely there is future for the Jew and for the Gentile. And Joshua in his last charge to Israel suggests God's promises of the land had been completely fulfilled. And then he redirects Israel to the provisions made for them through the Mosaic Covenant, saying this, Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow, or bow down to them. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Uh, for the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you, as for you no man stood before you to this day. Uh, one of your men puts a flight to a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given to you. It is true that many of the same promises made in the Abrahamic covenant were also repeated in the Mosaic covenant and repeated in the Old Testament uh, under the Mosaic covenant. Uh, what is the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic? The Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. God promises, if you do this, if you obey, if you do what I say, etc., etc., then I will do another thing for you. Uh, but the prophets always assured there were, there were conditions attached to remaining in the land. Did Israel meet the conditions? No. Oh, they miserably failed. And what they would need is the promise of a new covenant again to be announced to them through the prophets. Who's the keeper of the new covenant? It is to whom God said, this is my beloved son, with whom I, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What did the nation of Israel do to him? They yelled, crucify him. Does God owe Israel anything? Who have become Abraham's, Abraham's true descendants and heirs of God's promise in the church? a remnant of Jews 
and Gentiles. Again, is there a future for the Jew? This was always, always gets claimed. You're saying there's no future for the Jew. No, there's a future for the Jew, absolutely. It is realized through faith in Christ today under the new covenant promised in Daniel chapter 9. And those Jews who come to faith in Christ become co-heirs of the promise as one new man. Jesus says, I will build my church. And we are not told of another future covenant um, the church is God's plan. It's the only plan. Uh, boy, we went long. I'm done. We are, we are Christ's bride together. The groom has no wandering eye for another. He's not looking to date anybody else. The church is the apple of his eye. And we're going to discover Daniel 9 gives provisions for a new covenant and that the 70th week of Daniel is not a seven-year window of second opportunity for the Jew after the church is raptured. It's not what it is. Uh, the day that we are raptured is the day of the Lord's judgment. A um, little homework. Uh, please read through Daniel chapter 9 before next week. At least um, pay special attention to the length and the substance of Daniel's prayer. Um, and after that, the prophecies, uh, the prophecy of the 70 weeks is a little confusing, but we will together begin to look at that. Thank you again for your patience today. I, uh, it was a big chunk, and it's one of those things where you just want to really cover a lot of bases uh, that people would, would be able to consider.